Hello, welcome to another episode of the Internet Herald. I'm your host, Zaid Omar. Today we got a special guest, Mr. Ransom Fox. What's up, Ransom? Hello, Zaid. How are you doing? How are you doing? How's everything been treating you the last couple weeks? Everything's been great, man. You know, um, just, uh, you know, I've been on this strict workout re- uh, re- regiment right now, doing about, you know, five to six days a week getting ready for a jujitsu tournament coming up soon. So really excited about that. Yeah. I think we're going to uh, post that on the YouTube channel or maybe I'll make a separate YouTube channel for that, but it should definitely be exciting, man. What you been up to, man? Tell me. A lot recently, um, three jobs, wow. two internships, a presidency and an ambassadorship. Pretty much every day is filled Minus today, but then today's my free day where I get to do fun stuff like this or go on other podcasts. I was just on the Couch Potato Politics podcast. Um, I actually have a meeting today with the e-board of my organization, the Patriot Protection Association that I'm hopping on after this. And my grandma's flying in, my abuela from um, Florida. I haven't seen her in about two years, so really excited. Also, happy Father's Day, happy Juneteenth to everybody. Today's a great day. Today's a great Everything's going on today. Today's a great day, man. I love the energy, Ransom. Yeah. And Father's Day is such an important day because, mm-hmm. you know, the father is really the authority of the family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, and, you know, just having a strong role model for, you know, boys and even girls to look up to in the family, um, I think is very crucial. And the mom, of course, has a crucial role as well. Um, so, yeah, we just we got to respect our fathers. So definitely mm-hmm. respect the Father's Day. Um, so tell me, man, you, you, like, you're one of the most busy people I know, man. Like you like working how many internships again, how many jobs you work? So so right now for the jobs, I do the call center at Mason, as you're well aware of, I do that three times a week where I just, it's an annoying job for money. I got to beg alumni for money to pay for Mason. I also work as a private contractor for a genealogical firm, JDB genealogical incorporated. Basically, this guy does like family history. He researches it, and I um, do a bunch of software work with Evernote and, and Google Sheets, and, and take this data he collects and analyzes it, and I sort it for him. I also am a consultant and eboard member for the Conversationalists, so we meet about once a week, and they pretty much um, just like consultant meetings. I basically advise them on how they're doing. They ask me for like projects, what what am I what am I advice and stuff, what perspective I get paid to do that, and then for internships, I have a twenty hour a week internship with the Conversationalists. I'm on their user acquisition and partner team. So I do a bunch of projects for them. I also reach out to celebrities, people, and, and other people to try to get them to work with us. I'm also a host of one of their um, events called the Hot Seat Segment, where we try to have hot takes that break open echo chambers. I'm also been guested on their talk show. Last week, we talked about religion and astrology. I'm guesting in a talk show um, canon. It's more of like an internal type of pilot canon. It takes about a year. Like our, 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 uh, our, um, our advisor is Rich Keller. He was on Survivor, so he knows everything that that's to do with Hollywood TV and the people that lead our organization. They are like my boss is Desanka. She's an actress and, and model in Los Angeles. So a lot of these people, they know what it takes. It takes a lot of work. I didn't realize. I mean, I knew it took a lot of work to do stuff like this, like show talk, t- talk shows, and like um, podcasts and stuff. But it takes like a year at least of piloting, which is crazy, but it's really fun. It takes up a lot of time. I also interned for the Harold Pion campaign every Saturday, four hours, knocking doors in Clifton. Um, I'm an ambassador for the Stop the Demand Project, so I go around making they're, – they're a um, group that wants to end human trafficking through education, uh, so I make content for their Instagram and TikTok, 
and then I go to monthly meetings with them. And then I'm president and founder of the Patriot Protection Association, which we've already fundraised $20,700 more than the student government's budget last year. We're trying to be able to increase the security, safety, and well-being of Mason and the Fairfax community um, through the private sector. And we have three projects we're really excited to go through. Actually, I went to a meeting with the Mason police that was confidential. It was very, um, let's just say there's a lot of big security measures happening at Mason. We're talking to a, a technology group and a security group that works with the FBI and CIA. And some of the stuff I saw, man, it's like stuff in movies, the security measures that they're trying to implement. Um, so very, very cool things going on. Very exciting things. Um, lift every night. Try to at like 1 a.m. Um, I'm also coaching football this fall middle school. So I've been prepping. I'm getting really excited for that. So, yeah, a lot's been going on, but it's very exciting. A lot of great people around me. It's a team. Um, and I'm really excited to just get the, get the job going, get the ball rolling. Yeah, man. And it seems like you have a lot on your plate, man, like almost like three internships and two jobs. And, you know, again, the three internships, you're not really getting paid for in the end of the day. Right. So, yeah, money. Yeah, I got to make the jobs. I got to do the, the, the grind work, um, like working at the call center to be able to put, you know, be able to put food in my plate. Yeah, man. And uh, tell me a little bit more about the conversation list, because I, mm-hmm. I, I've i done some research, but I don't understand completely what they represent. And maybe tell yeah. a little bit what you do on your podcast as well, because I'm really interested to hear about that. Yeah, so I don't I don't have a podcast. I've been guested on podcasts. So I met people who have their own podcasts through the conversation list. I was on Elisa Gonzalez podcast where we talked about cancel culture. I was on Seamus Bozeman's podcast, the Couch Potato Politics, to talk about local government activism. Um Pretty much the conversationalist is a group of Gen Z leaders who strives to break open echo chambers and converse on anything, any topic, because we feel like that's the way we can unify the world and have progress. We feel like, especially in our generation, there's so many echo chambers, bubbles per se, where people are only surrounded by those who think like-minded on any topic. It can't, not just politics, it could be food, etc. And those who differ get, are afraid to speak up or they get trounced on left and right. So we feel like the goal to unify is to be able to be comfortable being uncomfortable and have conversations about things that matter. So our goal is to incorporate as many different diverse viewpoints on anything as possible to have like a networking type of um, enterprise of, of Gen Z leaders from all across the spectrum. I met political people. I've met artists. I've met tech people. It's beautiful. And we're going to start having in-person events, but basically to work with Gen Z orgs, Gen Z leaders and organizations, um, Older as well, we, we worked with like millennial organizations and like these niche type of like we worked with someone who they're he's the owner of an organization called Good Gigs in Australia. He works with hooking up Gen Z leaders with organizations that work for them. Just these like really cool brands and stuff and, and, and breaking open echo chambers, hearing new ideas, seeing new um, actions put into place. And it's pretty much just activism on that level that we want people to disagree, but we want them to be able to come to the table at the end of the day and just worst case being able to agree to disagree and it's really fun um we've worked with celebrities they've worked with dr oz kim kardashian i worked with um the guy in ned's declassified devin Workheiser. i was actually on a panel with him because a lot of these people that head this organization they have a lot of connections so like it's taking this top-down approach combining it with a bottom-up grassroots approach which is how i think change is made and it's just really great to just talk about anything like we're doing right now you know what i'm saying and, and like my role as i said um i host a segment they they're trying to do a um a talk show sort of gig that's their big type of it you know what i'm saying like you know how like starbucks has their coffee that's their brand our like it is going to be a talk show that it's gonna take a year about piloting but once it gets big i'm talking big 
can't really explain how big it's going to go, but like big, big. Um, can't disclose that, but just big. I'm talking yeah, big. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, they want to be like a Gen Z view combined with like SNL. So like I kind of do like a lighthearted skit. As I said, I host that. And then I've also, they switch up the host on the actual talk show about really heavy topics. And then um, I also, as I said, I work for the consultants team. So I just give advice. And then I work um, 20 hours a week with the user acquisition and partnership teams where discuss strategies and, and plan of actions about how to incorporate more people. And then we reach out to celebrities, people, not celebrities themselves, right? Cause they're busy and other organizations and try to recruit them in. So it's kind of like what I do, what we do, what you did as well, the call center, but like a lot more fun and a lot more impactful, you know, just recruiting. That, that's great, man. And you know, everyone starts off somewhere, you know, when you think about it, the Joe Rogan podcast began with like only, I think it was like 200 listeners or so. Uh, and I, Joe Rogan even admits that, you know, it wasn't something he would see as as big as it is now, you know, having so many guests from political, from, you know, different like fields and expertise, man. And every time I listen to the Joe Rogan experience, it's always like I learned something new, you know, exactly. and that's why. Yeah. And with music, I, you know, I, I had nothing against music. I listen to music a lot of the time, especially when I'm working out, you know, got to get the heavy metal or something, you know, really gets you pumped up. Um, but I feel like podcast, I get a little bit more out of it, you know, like more, even more knowledge or learn a new thing or two. Um, like for you, what was to, what, what, what podcasts do you listen to the most? Do you listen to a lot of political stuff or? JRE. I, I love JRE because you can learn serious stuff and fun stuff. When I, um, when you work out, you're more likely to retain stuff. So when I work out, I don't listen to music at all. I either listen to some sports podcasts just to like, you know, numb my brain or I listen to very heavy political podcasts. JRE is really good. I like some Tim Pool stuff. Um, but I, I like to like mix it up with JRE because I learn a lot of new things as well. And he, he even said he didn't go into it trying to be famous. It grew organically, which is how the best way things are born is organically. And I was just listening to one on um, polyamorous relationships right before I hopped on here, just in the background while I, was, while I was cleaning my room, just to learn. It's always, life is about, um, one of the reasons of, and goals of life is to learn and to equip yourself with as much knowledge as possible for your own benefit, for others' benefit, and for the future's benefit. So exposing yourself to all these different topics and stuff, even just as background noise, your subconscious, it clicks, it clicks, and then you'll be able to retain that and use it if necessary and have it in your arsenal and sharpen your personal tool shed. Wow. And also another one I really enjoy, and I even saw a movie produced by them, um, is London Real. Uh, you know uh, London Real, Brian Rose? Have you ever watched their podcast? I do not, but I will be, I'll be sure to check it out. Um, I'm really bad with names, so maybe I saw them on Gary, <laughs> but like, um, I'll be sure to check that out um, uh, after, after this episode for sure. Yeah, and they had a movie yesterday, and I, I want to explain what the movie was about because it, it really is inspirational and very motivational. Um, especially for people who are trying to either get in shape or accomplish a goal. And, you know, you're trying to accomplish a lot of goals. So I think you'd definitely find, uh, you know, quality in this movie. It's called Iron Mind. And what it essentially is about is the guy who uh, pretty much is the host of London Real is visiting his friend in New York. And his friend is, I believe his name is called John Joseph. And I believe he was an old rock and roll, um, heavy metal. I forgot what genre he was, a musician. And uh, pretty much John Joseph kind of convinces Brian Rose to do the Iron Man challenge. Uh, have you heard of the Iron Man triathlon? Sorry, Maybe. it's not the challenge. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's crazy, yeah. man. That stuff's hard. Yeah, I know. You know, and I have some friends that do it and they say, dude, it, it takes at least a year of preparation to, you know, get into that. And you, the shape you got to be in and the endurance, it's all about endurance, you know, um, 
you know, it's, it's crazy. And well, he pretty much challenges him. He's like, in this 90 days, you're going to get ready for this Iron Man challenge. And keep in mind, the Iron Man challenge takes at least a year, uh, typically for most people to get ready for. But he's like, you're going to do this in 90 days. And I challenge you to go on a plant-based diet. Now, imagine how challenging that is. Like already the Iron Man, if you're doing a year of, uh, you know, on a, you know, well-maintained diet and everything like that, um, it's hard enough. But like, dude, like on a vegan diet and even like a lot of the strength trainers and stuff he was talking to were saying, you can't do it. It's impossible. You're not getting as much nutrients as you would, you know, including meats into your diets and vitamin B12. But, um, you know, I, I don't want to spoil anything about the documentary. Um, it, it's definitely worth a watch and it's definitely um, motivational because the guy is not young. I think he's like in it. He was 40, late 40s when the movie was going on. So it does show that anything can be accomplished. And I for someone like you, movies. ambitious individual. Yeah, yeah. I love those. I love actually one of my favorite things to watch are old Vice documentaries. I don't know if you're familiar with. The new ones are, I get it. They run out of stuff sometimes and they're more kind of funky, but like the old ones, like when they fly to North Korea and they tour North Korea, like when they go to the war clad, like uh, nations and stuff like that, and their boots on the ground, those are so interesting to watch. Oh my God. They they did a Vice documentary on what happened on January 6th. It was like a multi year project. Vice documentaries are something that I like to listen to when I work out and watch as well because they're very. They're real. They're not like, you know, corporatized or sensationalized. Like most of them are very legit and they're very unique as well, which is what I like about it. It's not the same talking points over and over that you'll see on like a Fox News, MSNBC or CNN. Yeah. And they see uh, what, like I, I saw the episode you're talking about, the North Korea episode. Mm-hmm. And you see how like, you know, vacant North Korea is like at least in the episode. I believe it was shot back in 2009, 2008. It was an older vice. It was 2011. It was when Dennis Rodman went. Oh yeah, Dennis Rodman, oh, yeah, the basketball yeah. player. Yeah, apparently Kim Jong Un was quite the basketball uh, player fan or basketball. Love basketball. Fan. When he studied abroad from North Korea, he was he fell in love with basketball, and that's like his go-to sport. Yeah, and also like it just what I like about Vice News is their production value. What they put into every episode, it's literally like you're watching a mini movie. Exactly, and, you're right. Oh my god, yeah, and the production value. I believe they're uh, produced or they air on HBO. So they definitely do have the money to back up some of their funding and like uh, their production value. Oh my God. Yeah. Vice news is definitely a good one. Uh, what's a, what's your like uh, go-to for news? Like, do you focus on social media? Do you, um, you know, is there a specific, you know, news agency? You- a bit of everything. So I, I don't like a lot of the Instagram captions people repost. A lot of them are just either spread of misinformation or they're too, too sensationalized and simple for very nuanced topics um but it does get me aware and then i'll research when it comes to news i will look at fox cnn and msnbc for breaking news because they have the billion dollars to be able to cover that right you're not going to be everything else that like you read for figuring out what actually happened they don't have the means to be able to cover stuff 24 7 so if there's breaking news like um, hurricane in Texas or live shooter in Oklahoma or, you know, Joe Biden passes away, anything like that, they're going to be able to give it to you like that. So I constantly check that for the breaking news, but to actually see what really happened instead of sensational talking points that come from those news outlets, I like to read um, um, Business Insider. I like to read Politico, Real Clear Politics, 538 by Nate Silver is one of my go-tos because he uses analytics and numbers. I love that. 
And then I like to look up local news um, stations that cover said topic to get more of um, local news isn't always objective, but it definitely has a different feel to it. And it's more chewy per se. Most of the yeah. time, but I like to get I mean, that point of view, just a combination of all those on a big event is what I like to do. Yeah, man. And we also need to keep in mind that each mainstream news outlet's going to have its own biases in a way, even yeah, if, absolutely. you know, what it seems like uh, if they're being neutral on a certain subject, they're always going to have that kind of, they're going to either lean more towards the left or the right, depending what, you, you know, what news station you listen to. You, you listen to Fox News and some of the stuff is, you have to admit, is a little over the top, you know. Some of the- so. They all are over the top. They're all globalist corporatist media and their only society is to make money which is not bad that's that's their nature they want to hook people in with um implicit bias and be like uh, confirmation bias as well and, and um for people to feel good reading stories that that they, that they agree with like oh man this is right i was right on this topic i was right about joe biden and donald trump it's just when i don't like when people take those news sources to heart because everything is so much more nuanced so what i like to do i like to get Let's say there's a story on Donald Trump. I like to get one mainstream. I like to get three more flushed out, like Business Insider, Forbes, um, Politico. And then I like to get a couple like niche Instagram or Twitter stories on it that clearly are biased, but you mix them all together and you get a better picture. Also, if you're trying to prove a point, always look up the opposition side. If you're trying to prove a leftist point, see if there's a New York Post or Fox News article that agrees with you because then in a debate, you'll be able to absolutely win. If you're on the right and there's um, a talking point or an issue you're trying to prove correct in a debate, find something from the New York Times or Washington Post or CNN that agrees with you. They happen sometimes. They happen more often than you think. They're just not covered as much. But if you find those, you'll be able to easily win a debate because you prove that both sides are covering it. That's what I recommend to people. That's what I personally do. Yeah, man. And you, you have to understand both sides in order to have a credible you know, source <laughs> You know, and you have to also look at your sources as well. You know, if you're getting all your news from Fox News, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a very um, biased point of view Absolutely. towards maybe a certain subject. Yeah. So uh, for me, um, I don't know. Uh, do you feel comfortable telling where you lie on the political yeah, spectrum? Man. Absolutely. So um, a lot of people, it's funny, there's actually um, the Mason political Facebook group, which is just a clusterfuck of <laughs> failures. It, it's it's the worst um facebook um entity to be a part of like these people shut down anything that they disagree with and they think people are one or another it's just such a mess it's fun to be a part of because it's funny how these people act just to watch from the sideline the first group one of them actually shut down because they wanted to have equality and belief points which is great but they couldn't decide what belief i was people were saying oh he's a leftist he's a rightist people were like arguing what i am and it was so funny because they didn't even ask me what belief i actually hold i like to define myself as I'm a registered independent and I switch um, who I, because Virginia is an open state, so right, you can vote either Democrat, Republican, primary. I switch it up. So like this election, I was a delegate for the Virginia governor's race. The last main election, which is more local elections, I was a, I voted in the Democrat primary. I've worked for the Michael Dukakis Center, which is a Democrat organization in Thessaloniki, Greece for them. I've also worked for the Andrew Yang campaign for president and for, um, for mayor of New York. But I had to stop because it was hard because it was New York. Anyway, I'm, I'm working right now for the Harold Pion campaign. He's a Republican. I work for the John Whitback campaign, Republican. I worked for the Nick Friedis campaign, Republican. My track record's all over the place because my beliefs are not tied down to a party. I hate I hate big party people, and I can't – I hate a strong word. I can't stand 
and my beliefs are I'm very anti-establishment. I think my personal beliefs is that Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, um, Mitt Romney, Chuck Schumer, um, Paul Ryan, um, Mitch McConnell, they're all the same to me. They're all globalists, capitalists, you know, only in it for themselves and their friends. So I'm more on the anti-establishment end. I like people like Ross Perot. He ran in 1992 96. I really liked his his policies and how he acts. Andrew Yang is a great example. That's my favorite person in politics right now, though not as much as I used to be. But I would say I'm more pragmatic because I don't just go left or right with issues. My I'm all over the place. Like for trade, I'm more left-leaning. Let's say for um, – um, taxes, I'm more right-leaning. It's all over the place because I like to be nuanced, independent thinking, and pragmatic. Although my focus, I'm on another podcast, I did a whole thing on local politics, is local politics because I believe that's the most important level of politics. So I like to say I'm more local issues focused, more independent, anti-establishment. And last but not least, I'm kind of more live, let live, unless it hurts the public, and civic nationalist. I believe that you should do what's best for everybody within your nation because no one else will. It's more of a realist approach. So that was a lot. I know it was a mouthful. That pretty much pretty much just to say I'm not like the standard right wing or left wing bearer. And I used to be growing up because I grew up in a very one-sided household, right? And that's where I grew up. But then expanded my mind. Going to Greece really helped that and going to college helped that. And now I'm pretty much um, all over the place. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are forgetting that, like, you know, politicians are supposed to represent the people. But, you know, like notice that some politicians represent their uh, like their interests rather than like. like yeah. No, no. There are some, you know, we can argue that Bernie, you know, he's been very consistent in the past. Yeah, Bernie sold out. He lives in a very large mansion. Every politician is in it for themselves, which is fine. That's how the system the system is meant for. It's, an, it's, it's basically a socioeconomic system where you are only in it for yourself gain. The point, the point of politics and the point of why our founders framed it the way it is, is to take this ambition. And while the intentions may not be the purest, although I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with people trying to do what's best for them because that's human nature. They want You have to have a product that helps other people. You can go in and you can only care about yourself. Zane, you can go into politics and only want to be president because you want to be president. You like the gigs with it. If you end up fixing our healthcare crisis, making everybody's life better, who cares if you're in it for yourself? The whole point of a political system is to take people's personal ambitions and make it result in a product that helps others because everybody's going to say, oh, I'm in it to help other people. And they're par- nuanced. Of course, some people like helping other people. But of course, everybody wants to do it for themselves. That's why you get into it. There's perks to it. And that's not a problem if you put out a product that helps other people. The issue is those in power today put out a product that only helps themselves and their friends and those that donate and back them, not the people. And that's what the issue is. But as as I said, everyone, you know, you could be, you could be a person with good beliefs, but it's not 100%. It's 50-50, 60-40, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I think lobbying and uh, money and power also has to do with a lot of like the policies that do go through. Um, back when uh, President Trump was, um, you, uh, or, you know, at the time he wasn't president, but when uh, Donald Trump was running for president, um, I believe there was a lobbyist that paid him uh, a certain amount of money. It was, I think, in the millions range uh, to help his campaign and promise in return that they would make, uh, like, he would like enforce that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Now, I don't remember exactly who exactly uh, gave him that much money, but um, do you see that 
problematic in a way, like the fact that, you know, the lobbyists have most of the control sure. and the actual majority of the yeah. people are Absolutely. not. Absolutely. So the, the problem in America today, this is more zoomed out and then we can go into that because the zoomed out issue, this correlates to that. And this is a part of it. The problem in America today is that we have a caste system, not a class system. Our capitalist globalist system has become a system of crony capitalism with oligopolies and monopolies, which leads to economic failures and social failures. Big government, big tech, big media, big business leads to so many vast issues across the nation. One of this is, is that these oligopolies and monopolies not only have all the economic power and suck it, suck up the market so that small businesses can't really get a head start, they also have all the political and social power. Because of how we are as a society and how big of a nation we are, you need money to rise up. You get that money from these companies. These companies aren't going to want you to go in and bust them up and break them up. They're going to want you to help them out. The only person that can really, truly, potentially make change is a self-funded person. However, a lot of these self-funded people are friends with all the people at the top because it's all just a small circle. The deep state isn't some lizard people conspiracy or some, you know, Infowars type stuff. All the deep state is, is bureaucrats and lobbyists who have been in power for a long time. You don't know who they are because they don't get attention and they're working for themselves, which is human nature. They're not evil. They're not bad people. Some, of course, some may be assholes. But most of the time, they just want to push their interest through, which is helping themselves, which you can't blame them. Everyone would do that at the top. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So what you need, you need somebody who can be self-funded, go to the top, and bust up all of these monopolies and oligopolies. You do that, they will lose their economic power, which is a whole other issue. They'll also lose their political power, and you can have people that don't need to have these big donations and big donors and funders rise to the top. But that's going to be clearly impossible because to do that, you need someone, number one, with the money to do that by themselves. And number two, that person has to be willing and able to basically give the middle finger to their friends and bust them up, which Donald Trump ran on doing, but he didn't really do. He did like a, eh, he more kind of exposed it rather than act on it. We need someone like a Teddy Roosevelt to act on it and bust up the big companies. Well, I think also uh, the reason why Donald Trump was so like prolific and stuff, it was he had that like he had that money. He didn't need, you know, he wasn't relying on donations from, you know, contributors and lobbyists, um, even though he did get a lot from you know his supporters. Mm -hmm. But he also had that, you know, he had those multiple businesses. He had that, you know, the, the economics in front of all the policies. He, he saw that first. He said, OK, we need to create jobs. You know, I'm not saying I, I was for or against the guy again. Um, I consider myself. On my political spectrum, uh, libertarian lean more towards the right, and that's just how I am. Um, uh, the thing is, I'm willing to understand like different people from you know, like like how you said, you know, you got to work with the Democrats, you got to work with the Republicans. We are here to rep, like you know, politicians are there to rep represent the people. Now, if they were to represent only one section of the population that could piss off the other section. That's why you had this whole like limbo of, you know, um, CNN like hating or like, you know, other news outlets hating on Trump and then other ones like really praising him and saying he's, you know, one of the, our best presidents, you know, and even Joe Biden was saying during the debate, he's like, oh, you're one of the worst presidents we've ever had. But then like, I would say, well, like, dude, almost half the population, half the other population, you know, like thinks he's the best president, you know, so 
Also, you mentioned uh, you worked with Andrew Yang, and I do want to mention some of his policies. I don't know if you agreed on a lot, like everything he stood for. Um, so universal basic income, let's start with there. You get, so essentially from what I heard, and it, this was from the Joe Rogan podcast, I didn't do extensive research, uh, is that he wants to give uh, workers who are unemployed due to automation, you know, replacement by automation, $1,000 per month. Um, do you think the U.S. economy could really do that? Like for the, you know, like for the people who got replaced, like who were working service jobs, do you think that's feasible? Because I don't really believe that it, that could be feasible. Cool. So universal basic income, its goal is to help workers who are laid off. Actually, everybody, to be honest, I think it's um, it's a, it helps help everybody who's not in the elite socioeconomic class, but. It's not just given to those workers, it's given to everybody. So Alaska already does this with oil. They have an oil check they give to people because the oil gives them so much wealth and revenue that they use it to subsidize all the people that live there. Um, and Alaska is a red state, which is very interesting because you wouldn't think that Republicans would support something like this, but it works very well in Alaska. Milton Friedman, the godfather of right-leaning economics, was a proponent of this, and so was Martin Luther King Jr. UBI... Um, the whole goal of it is to create a trickle-up economy. The whole goal of it is to transfer money over from ineffective and inefficient welfare programs and to give it in the most liquid and free way as possible to the people, which is direct cash or check, which, of course, you can make a cash. Let people do what they want with the money instead of being told what to do, having to wait into, in, in large lines, having ineffective government programs that – don't really do much help. Rather, they, they keep people trapped at the bottom instead of allowing them to invest up and rise up. That is the goal of UBI. You have to be very careful of how you implement it. When Andrew Yang wanted to do it when he was running for president, he proposed 12000 a year. The median um, poverty line was at 12.4K, which is good. You want it right below the poverty line. You want it so that it allows people to have a safety net so that instead of all the time just living paycheck to paycheck and spending your money on necessities to survive, you know have that so you can take the money you earn and invest in the stock market. Take a loan to go to college. Take a loan from the bank to create your own business and, and offer a product or service that will help others around you and help your community and yourself as well. What the goal of this is, is to allow people to use the wonders of capitalism because that is lost right now. Capitalism is great because it allows people to take risk and do what they want and be free. Right now, because of the crony capitalism we have, we have a lot of people who are in shackles because of capitalism and they are just trying to get the needs to survive. And these government programs, some are okay. A lot of them keep people down. They don't really help out. So what this does, it allows you to do what you want. If you take that 1000 a month and you want to spend it on better podcasting equipment because you believe your it is podcasting, you can do that. Instead of being having to do whatever the government program says. Let's say you're living by yourself, you're struggling. Instead of having to take that money and having to basically just do what the government says, you can do what you want with that money. If you want to spend all of it on collector shoes, that's your choice. 
you know, that's you know, maybe that's not the best choice economically, but that's your choice. Well, some well, some people would argue that 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 thousand dollars, even though you could say you can invest it or you know use it for rent or whatnot, that that thousand dollars nowadays, especially with inflation, really doesn't really add up to much. Especially you know rent, I can't think of a place that is like has a rent of a thousand dollars. Like especially since these people aren't really working, and the whole point of universal basic income. Uh, the the main point is to get those people who were used to work service jobs, just uh, you know that additional income, but they're not working those jobs anymore, so they're not getting really additional extra besides that thousand dollars, you know. So that's my point of view. Like, what what, what do you like? What, what's your response to that? Really? So so um, it wouldn't raise inflation if done correctly because it transfers money from one program to another. You also may add a VAT tax as well to kind of offset it. If you just print more money and hand it out to people, that's so stupid. That's not what UBI is. If someone does that as UBI, you're going to cause a huge inflation price uh, uh, crisis, which low-key we're seeing today, honestly. Low-key we're seeing that right now. It's transferring money over. That's why there's no inflation. Um, as I said, the median... U.S. national um, poverty line was 12.4K. So this 12K would allow people to be right below the poverty line so that if they do, if they do get money from a job, and of course, you're not going to transfer this from every single program. So there's still going to be an unemployed benefits program, et cetera. You'll be able to combine all of these benefits, which I take UBI as, and be able to, instead of just scraping together everything, Try to invest. Try to go up because that is enough. You can use the a thousand either as your means to survive and everything else. You can you can let's say your income from your job or some other benefits. You can you can try to use that to invest. Or most people will take their income from the job and, and take their benefits, use that to survive, and the a thousand to invest. It doesn't. It's not going to be like that, but it's going to be. It takes time. But you're still going to be able to have the opportunity to do that, especially if this is what I would propose. Instead of one national UBI, if you did state UBIs, because as you said, people live in different situations. The United States is such a large and different and diverse nation, which is beautiful. We have to accommodate for that. Someone living in Wyoming is a different economic and social uh, and honestly um, incentives on what they want to do than someone living in California. So if you do a state UBI and you could have the, the federal government already um, subsidize the states like New York, they send so much money to a bunch of um, states in the, in, the, in the middle of America because the federal government pretty much makes them to do. So you can do some working out to make sure subsidies are, are there, but you can pretty much each state has a different poverty line, right? I don't know what each state is on top of my head, but let's say Virginia, it's anything below 15,000. So you give people... 14.5,000 total a year. You transfer that money over, obviously, not just give them, you transfer the money over into cash. Let them do what they want. You'll see new businesses popping up. You'll see more investments in the stock market. You'll see um, new ideas and, and products coming to place. And it would solve a lot of other issues as well because the reason why a lot of people, if you're unemployed or you don't have the means to survive, the likelihood of you abusing yourself or others doubles, pretty much doubles. So you'll see those rates start to decrease because everything's economics. If once you have the means to survive, you'll be able to, you have less depression, you'll have less anxiety. You'll also um, be less obliged to turn to do crimes because a lot of people enact crimes out of necessity, not out of want. There's some crazy, of course, there are people that are going to just be psychopaths, but that's not the majority of people. This is a good way to help people out. And in addition, those who are at the top and get this $1,000, they're probably going to invest it down. People at the top 
invests money, a lot of their money down in organizations or donations anyway. So this $1,000 check is nothing to them. If you're rich, $1,000 is chump change. You'll probably send it down. If you're at the bottom, if you're a single mother with four kids, that $1,000 is everything to you. This gives you hope. This allows you to pay for those diapers and now also maybe invest in the stock market or work on an idea you want or go to college potentially. Whatever X amount of dollars. It's not perfect, but it's the best possible solution. Now, if you go too much, if you go over that poverty line, you're going to disincentivize people from doing anything. And it's going to create a very um, poor society, uh, community, and culture. So you need to balance it very well. And there are ways to do that. But that's why I believe, to your point, one national one may not be the best. Having state ones where it's more you know, subject to the state and more um, individualized I believe personally is a better way of doing things. So you're essentially saying with the thousand dollars, you're saying it should be state focused and that the states with less job opportunities and less economic, you know, prosperity should have um, larger um, uh, universal basic incomes. Is that what, based, essentially what you're saying? It's based on the state poverty line. So it's based all on what poverty is for each state. Cause it differs, right? It's not like the national poverty line, which in 2018 was $12,400 a year. It could be different. I don't know what they are at the top of my head, right? But of course, each state varies. So it's because $12,000 may be too much money for one state. One state, maybe maybe the poverty line is below. For another state, it could be too little. You need more money to be able to have it felt to your point, which is why, as I yeah, state-based X amount of dollars that are um, decided upon based on the um, X amount of whatever the poverty line is by state is the best way to run it. You could also do it locality-wise, but they don't have enough money or power to really do that. And some do, maybe like New York City, which is what Andrew Yang wants to do as mayor, right? Big cities, yes. Small towns, if you have a town of like 20 people, it's going to be kind of hard to do that. It could work, work maybe, but it's it's safer to do it state-wise. Excuse me, safer to do it statewide. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, it's interesting what you brought up, like about how like economic situations and mental health are kind of oh, interconnected in a way. Yeah. And Andrew Yang was talking about that in, um, on the Joe Rogan experience. He's like every time somebody, you know, like they, they feel like they can't afford something. They, they, they always try to find a way to cut back on money, you know, either like take the bus to work or, um, you know, not eat out on specific days. Um, but that just according to Andrew Yang, he said that that lowers the IQ. It doesn't really get you to like overcome those obstacles. It rather just dumbs you down in a way. Would you agree with that at all? Or do you? It, it pretty much just, it, it makes you um, grind more and, and kind of become numb more because you have to just kind of go through these numbing day-to-day -day experiences, just depressed on the bus, going to work a job that you probably get underpaid for that you hate to come home to not enjoy yourself because you got to you're stressed out because you know your house may get foreclosed you know your house may get taken away from you you don't have enough money and savings to, to pay for your son's college and it's just a perpetual pattern of depression no one wants to live that life but if you yeah. had that safety net so that you could take care of your not everything it's not gonna be like that but you could divert some to take care of your you know your housing bills you divert some to your child's college fund you use the rest of it maybe go out for a nice dinner with your family maybe if you want to make more money invest in the stock market maybe you have a trade maybe you're a great artist you know art it's a very hard field to break into but you have this money to now get the resources to be able to try to put yourself out there it just allows you to do what's best for you. The problem with big government programs, it's not that they're malicious or evil. It's just that 
everybody is different. We all don't fit under a blank slate. You know, there are similarities, but everybody has their individual unique issues, talents, wants, needs, and allowing them to choose what, you know, they want to invest in is a lot better than telling them what they have to invest in. And maybe they mess up. Maybe you have somebody who spends that money on a drug addiction. Maybe you have somebody who spends that money instead of investing it in their child's college on a shoe collection. But you know what? You know what? That's their choice. That's their choice. And if they want to do that, that is their choice. We shouldn't control people and tell them what to do, even if we assume that they're incorrect. That is my personal opinion. That's more subjective, but that's this is what objectively that allows. Okay. Um, very interesting. <laughs> So um, many people would argue against the whole universal basic income, you know, just proposition. And they'd be like, oh, why don't we just uh, redirect that money into education to get those people who work service jobs, either as a waiter, a trucker, you know, just anything that's physical, uh, physically tolling, like into like more of programming or something that's hot right now in the industry. You know, um, we, would that also be a proper solution, do you feel? Or is that? Are you referring to government retraining programs? Because that's yeah, most yeah, of yeah. Yes. So those have a very, very low success rate. I believe it was 12, 13, 14%, one of those success rates. It's almost impossible for that to work. Um, the beauty, Why do you think that is? I like, I, I, I believe it is because people, if you grow up doing one thing your whole life, if you're talking specifically about blue collar workers, drivers, coal miners, you know, these industries that steel workers that are going away. That's all you know. That's all you do, especially if there's someone 30 or over. The technological boom of the 21st century, it's – I don't blame older people for not understanding how this works. You know, My mother and father, they're in their 50s. They don't understand a lot how stuff they, – they have a basic grasp, right? They know what stuff yeah. is, but it's not like us, right? And these new jobs, a lot of them are tech jobs. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, and you shouldn't expect them to. This study was done, I believe, in the 60s. The, the, the government retraining was during the Kennedy days. It's probably a lot lower now because it's very hard to take someone who's been doing and um, raised in a way their whole life and to force them to do something else. It's just unfair and almost impossible. The good news is, is that UBA, it could be long-lasting, but maybe it doesn't have to be because people our age, we are growing up doing these jobs. We are doing the IT jobs. We're doing the tech jobs. We don't need a retraining because that is our blue collar stuff. I mean, there's still people our age who do traditional blue collar jobs. Don't get me wrong. But because of the demand for these jobs that are getting phased out is, is becoming less and less, there's a lot less people in our generation, and the future generations who are going to work those jobs. So there won't be necessarily a need to protect them from this oncoming wipeout. What you do need to do is protect the 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old worker from this because it's so unfair to them that just because um, some numbers and stats on a graph change that their whole livelihood's wiped out and you can't expect them to do something that they have no grasp or, or concept of to do. I'm not saying they're dumb or stupid at all. These people are- No, crazy. no. <laughs> yeah, these and if for anyone who's like worked programming or you know, like anything that's IT related, the, these are not easy things to just exactly. you know, delve into and like learn automatically. There are people I know that like, they either worked as like a manager at Wegmans or worked a very like, you know, more service uh, type of role and that they were able to get into cybersecurity or they're able to get into like computer programming. Mm -hmm. But the majority, based off what you're saying, is that that's not like always yeah, the- It could happen. And for those people, that's great. And there should be training programs in place for those people who want to and think they can to do it. But that shouldn't be the only option. 
because while it is numbers on the spreadsheet, those are livelihoods, right? The thing about economics, which is so interesting, is that it's a science, right? It's a science. And unlike other sciences, like let's say chemistry, where you can go in the lab and you can experiment, you know? Unlike that, unlike engineering, where you can go to a go to an engineering class and experience, economics is a study of real life, real time livelihoods. These are people at the end of the day. You can't, I mean, some people do experiments with monkeys. Some people, there's like, games you do um that 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 prove theories but in terms of real world felt economics the science of economics it's our livelihoods it's our day-to-day lives and most of the time because of the nature of it you just look back you see what works and doesn't work make prediction of what's going to work now go for it and do the best you can that's why not a lot of risk are taken because these are people's lives you can't just say oh well you know 80 percent of Co-workers, they're not going to learn how to retrain, but it's fine because it's better for everybody as a whole. These people are individuals. You can't just sacrifice their livelihood, their mental health, their physical health, their their lives pretty much for the good of everybody else. I'm not a believer in that because I think every person is valued equally. Thus, we should try to take care of each other equally as much as possible. That is my perception on that. Yeah. And uh, like, again, like there are people who make the choice that they they want to like switch from one industry to the next. And it's e- pretty easy for them, especially if they're in the younger ages. But for people who've been working, let's say you've been a truck driver for 25 years and you've, um, you know, you started when you were 30, for example. Right. So and you're 55 years old and you have back problems and chronic pain and whatnot. Um, and, you know, maybe your learning is not as good as it used to be. Um, it's a lot harder to get into like something like programming or cybersecurity. Another thing that Andrew Yang advocated for, and it was a form of government, it's called technocracy. Um, And for people who don't know, technocracy is essentially someone who has expertise in a certain field, whether it be in the scientific or uh, technology field. And they're usually chosen to be the the president or the ruler of the country. Um, Do you see that as an effective form of government, like rather than somebody who knows, like kind of like kind of can delve into each Mm -hmm kind of you know political topic what you have is you have political appointees to top departments and agencies purely based on one's relationship to another or one's deeds to another not on expertise how can you be efficient in that way we're all about efficiency here if you're an elected official let's say i'm elected to office and there is a um issue on cyber attacks i can get um prepped on it i can make a decision on it but i'm not an expert at it so i want there to be an agency with experts in this that pretty much make the decisions, right? There's stuff that elected officials are valuable for, but in terms of um, other fields and enterprises, they don't, they're not experts on it. And they're not the ones who are able to make the best decisions, which is why you see just a lot of failures over and over again. It's why there's still a water crisis in Flint, Michigan, because the people that are put there to, to put, um, to put, um, policies in place don't know what to do and it's not fault of their own they're not experts so put let the experts do it it's so much more efficient that's what the private sector does and that's why the private sector is so efficient that's why i think you need to mix it together not a full technocracy because then there's no representation yeah right mix it together and then you'll have i mean that's not going to happen because the political people aren't going to want to let their power but ideally if you have like a syncretic blend of a technocracy and a democracy or a republic and a technocracy you'll have a great that's what china does and that's why china kicking our ass and they're kicking the rest of the world's ass because they are just 
they're running it very, very efficiently and effectively. And that's not what we have here. Yeah. And also imagine if we had like an expertise in cybersecurity that was, uh, you know, in like the presidency or like even like in a high political position, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, the situation in which the the pipeline, remember? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That just happened. Yeah, the gas. Yeah. That was due to a ransomware attack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Joe, uh, President Joe Biden decided to, um, pay off the hackers rather than try to find a credible solution. Yeah. And again, the, the, you know, it's not the easiest thing to solve, especially if they got your um, data in like ransom, essentially. Um, you know, someone who is an expertise in cybersecurity probably would have found a way or some company would have found a way. I bet it would be a profitable idea, um, a, a way to either prevent ransomware attacks or to um, mitigate the damage. Because well, so far, like it's in cause an increase in gas prices and other you know it just mm-hmm. goes to show that you know someone in another country could literally declare war Absolutely. through their laptop actually that's so i don't know if you're familiar with the youtuber jake tran i watched him a lot of his a lot of his videos we america as a nation and as a society are so screwed when it comes to warfare because we are on the low ground the high ground in warfare nowadays is technology and our technological defense mechanisms are so behind the offense of Russia and China. While we are investing in tanks and planes and guns, China and Russia are investing in getting the best and brightest hackers on their team. We are being totally fooled. We are looking in the wrong direction. Warfare, it's always about who is the high ground, right? When America fought in the 90s in the Middle East, the Jets were the new high ground. Right? While Saddam Hussein was focused all on the ground forces, they got wiped out like that because jets were the new high ground. We are now on the ground and we have no idea what to do or where to go when it comes to being hacked because we are focusing our efforts in the wrong places and we are being played and fooled. You need to have more defense on tech mechanisms and we are not doing that whatsoever. That's why China and Russia can easily topple the American society because we are focusing our efforts in the wrong places. And it's very scary. It's very scary. Yeah. And think about it. Most of our societies run on the internet nowadays, uh, internet of things like your iPhone, your computer, you know, even like uh, your, you know, certain cars have like operating systems. If you get a Tesla, it runs on a, I believe a Linux operating system. If, you know, it's very easy to control the things that we are now like, uh, or pretty much we see as necessities nowadays, which they really aren't, you know, food, water, uh, sleep that's that's all like necessities that we as human beings need but nowadays uh, it seems like technology is another just another necessity that we need and you know it controls our lives you know economics you know, think about a lot of businesses have transfer uh trans transitioned into the online format especially with covid um so like what do you think is the future as far as um so we know that the vaccines are out and you know, I don't know how much of the American population has been vaccinated or not. Do you see as COVID as kind of like now the like the flu, the new flu, if anything? Or do you think that, you know, it's going to have an impact? It's still going to have so, an COVID is our new 9-11. There is no going back to the new normal. Once 9-11 hits, society changed. Just by little, it wasn't great, but society changed. Because of COVID, things are not going to get back to how they were. It, it may not be marginally to view a difference, but people are going to wear masks more. People are going to be more um, less incentivized to be in large crowds. People are going to wash their hands more, which is a good thing, right? People are going to um, – there's good and bad to it. But society has changed because now if there's a flu outbreak, people are going to remember this. It's, they're going to 
lose their shit to put it nicely like i think um yeah so as i was saying um there is a new normal whether for better or for worse we'll see but after 9 11 society changed and because of COVID, society is going to change it's not going to be like it was you know before the outbreak and that's okay changes happen in society we just have to do it the best we can with it um but i do believe that while the flu itself who knows who knows maybe become um, whether excuse me well, COVID itself, whether it becomes a flu or not, who knows, right? I assume so. I assume we're going to get vaxxed every year or something like that. Who knows what the variants will be. But in terms of the bigger impact, which is societally, culturally, I think that it is a new normal. Um, not a new normal as like, oh, we all are getting tracked by the government. Not a new normal as like, this is anarchy or anything. No, just changes happen. Subtle changes in society happen. And... It's going to be different, and that's okay. We're just going to have to saddle up and do the best we can with it. Yeah, and uh, also we keep it. Uh, I forgot to mention that, like during quarantine, you were actually in Greece. It was oh, d- during yes. quarantine, wasn't it? Oh, it was right when COVID <laughs> hit, man. While y'all were selling out of toilet paper, we were trying to get food to survive. We were like, Americans are so privileged. Americans are so privileged compared to the rest of the world. We were trying to get the basic necessities to survive while everyone here was running out of toilet paper. And we we're like, this is just embarrassing, man. Like, Especially uh, the Greek economy. They're not like oh, the yes. most stable. The Greek economy is very unstable. And 80% of their economy is tourism. So you have a situation where a lot of people are already struggling for food. You shut down the majority, vast majority of their economic input, right? How they make money. So, and you also have people panicking because at the time, man, you had no clue what this was. You yeah, and yeah. We're, we're closer to China than America was. You had no clue what it does. And all of a sudden, it was like Italy's hit. We're like, oh, my God, we got hit. So people panicked. People Italy hit, other, got hit pretty hit bad. Hard. Yeah, people would jump each other for food in stores. Stores shut down. So now the only way to get food is scraping through trash cans and hoarding up. We had to do that. We had to scrape through trash cans at night. We're only there for two weeks. Then we left. But every night, I would go out at about 1 or 2 a.m., scout everywhere because the leaves in our housing thanks george mason the leaves in our housing was up they said we would have a place to stay then george mason said just kidding after two weeks you're on your own and we're like okay we got two weeks to figure out where the hell we're gonna live where we're gonna get food where we're gonna be safe because when i'd walk around scouting at night i saw people get jumped one time me and um my now girlfriend this was right before right when it hit got chased by dogs i heard people screaming i was trying to like figure out Get a mental map in my head, figure out where we're going to go, what we're going to do, what we're going to do for food. We had food in our hotel running very low. We had to stock up a couple times, had a scourge as well. Yeah. And this- one time I was walking by, it's just so apocalyptic. I actually have a lot of videos and stuff. I looked like an Antifa member, man. I had bandana around my mouth, didn't want to be seen, black leather jacket, black hoodie up. Um, one time I was walking around a hospital and a big, huge trash can got knocked over. So there were syringes. There were um gloves and face masks everywhere is a minefield and at the time we didn't know does it spread through touch so i was like walking around like in the pitch black it was really exciting but very eye-opening and very intense yeah and that seems very different from my experience during quarantine because i was in northern virginia during the time and i i just remember looking around and i remember like the streets that used to be so packed and traffic filled were just empty mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it definitely wasn't as bad as how you made it out to, like, you know, in, in Greece, how it probably was. But uh, there was definitely some sc- scarcity going on, especially with toilet paper. That was, mm-hmm. everyone was hoarding that for some reason. 
Um, it was the same thing what happened with the, the gas. Uh, yeah, no, it was people panic. You panic. <laughs> and it makes sense if it's like food or something. I get it. But like, I heard some dumb stuff about people like getting these plastic bags and filling it up with gas and tying it up and putting it in the back of their trunk. It makes it worse. It makes the situation yeah. worse. That's why my dad's like, look, I'm just going to get gas if I need it. I'm not going to hoard it because it's going to make the situation worse. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when there's the high demand, everyone's going to try making a quick profit somehow. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, back to the quarantine. I remember when I would go out at night, Thessaloniki, Greece is a beautiful city. Favorite place in the world. It's always packed with music, laughter, and joy. I heard the buildings, the the the, the, the ACs in the buildings, or or let's say the the energy in the buildings. I heard nothing but whirring, like bzzz, nothing but that, and some screams isolated at night. It was very apocalyptic. I got some videos. There were posters everywhere, like xenophobic racist posters. There was like <laughs> Greek posters saying it's the microchip. There were also um. There are a lot of places where, because it's very um, Orthodox church-like, because it's right on the, uh, it's very Byzantine history heavy. It's right on the border, right near Turkey um, in that area. So it's definitely more Orthodox heavy. There were always places where you could go pray and there were candles lit. You could always light a candle and pray. It's very peaceful. Nice. You nice. know how big religions is in Greece. When COVID hit, they ran out of candles for those things. They never do that. That is a no-no. So I knew when that happened, when that shut down, I'm like, this, this is legit, yo. Like their whole society, everyone, society is on pause. It's very terrifying. Wow. Yeah. And like, also, I don't know what kind of form of government Greece still has. Is it um, oligarchy still? Or is it like no, so democratic? It's, like a, it's a parliament. Um, they have a president too. Um, their president is actually, he's like a neocon. His dad was president in the 90s. He, they're like the Bushes. The government actually used this situation to gain legitimacy. So the Greek government, prior to COVID, had no say whatsoever. They canceled all these big carnivals for partying. People threw them anyway. We would ride on the bus for free, even though you're supposed to pay for a ticket. You could do whatever you wanted in Greece. It was pretty much a social libertarian's paradise. There are laws, but they're never enforced. There's no legitimacy. Now, because of COVID, you cannot go outside unless you text the government they give you permission. You're out there for two hours. If a policeman or woman stops you, you don't have the signed papers or the virtual text or you're out past your time, 500 euro fine right away. Second time you're in jail. It's wow. crazy. They, they, and it's, you know, the, it's the nature of the government to capitalize on things to gain power. They had no say whatsoever. There was a joke. There is a um, metro station being built in, in Thessaloniki since 1989. It hasn't been finished. The private, se- the public sector, excuse me, works Monday through Wednesday, 9 to 12. They had no say. You could do whatever you wanted pretty much unless you straight up killed someone. But even then, it was a hard time to stop you. Now, now, this government is like, this is our chance to gain legitimacy. And still in Greece, they were about to have a graduation for the seniors in 2020 and 2021 in the college I went to, the day before the government said, nope, they shut it down. So they wow. use this as a way to gain legitimacy for better or for worse. You know, it's up to whether you're a libertarian or authoritarian, but that they really use this to do that. And and there's some stuff open, some stuff not, but it's a lot more shut down than we are as America. Wow. Also, I noticed some other countries were taking advantage of that too. Like uh, I know in the Middle East, especially, there was some countries like Dubai, um, Dubai is a city, but United Arab Emirates, 
uh, they were imposing heavy fines and they had, I believe they had drones out, you know, again, and my dad lives there. So he told me all about it. He said that they were imposing heavy fines, you needed a permit to even go to um, a grocery store. So and, and I know also in Jordan as well, another Middle Eastern country that they were also imposing heavy fines, but people just didn't really. Yeah, they didn't care. Is you is a Dubai and UAE open now? Because I have a friend who's there, and she's always posting on her story, and it looks like they're back to normal now. Like they're partying and stuff. Oh yeah, during um, I was there during New Year's actually, and this was still when COVID was uh still impacting society in a way. Uh, uh, and I, I visited and that was actually the tourist hub during that time because every other country was shut down and Dubai had open arms. It was like, okay, we'll take anybody, you know, cause you know, our, some of our economy relies on tourism. So why not right. have everybody over for it? You know, and they always have these magnificent events in which they had these fireworks coming out of these buildings, like Burj Khalifa had them and they were all just shooting up in the air. This, there's this other Turkish hotel that had like, like some of the most impressive fireworks I've seen in a while. So, and there was a lot of celebrities there during that time too. A lot of TikTokers, influence, uh, Instagram influencers, stuff like that. Definitely we're trying to sell people on that. But, you know, um, also tell me a little bit about the food because the Mediterranean oh, diet is one of the healthiest I hear. Yeah. So I'm not a big tomato fan because up here, like cafeteria tomatoes are pretty gross, but <laughs> everything in Greece is grown fresh. You know that the higher gdp and wealth an individual has but gdp of a country you have the more likely to commit suicide greece is some of the some places where they have the longest life expectancy in the world because they're so happy the mediterranean lifestyle is so superior at least to the nova lifestyle because while the food is amazing the weather is great the the, the scene is great what made me fall in love with greece and what is still why i talk to people almost every day it's almost been a year and a half now, is the people. The Greek people, they they have it right. They know what's important in life. They care about memories, doing things, going to, to, to events, each other. It's not just all about the money. America's become a business. It's about money. In Greece, of course, money needs to survive, but they care about each other and about living life. That's why I've fallen in love with the Greek people. That's why I've fallen in love with Greece. That's why I still talk to them to this day because they get it. They know it's right. Food's great. Don't get me wrong. But why I love Greece. The people. The people. The people. people. I knew what you were about to say. Yeah, because you go to the the Middle Eastern region, for example, and you see pure Arab hospitality. Like they would literally invite you to their house. They would literally bring you like two cups of tea, cookies, sweets, especially Arabic sweets, man. Those are deadly, man. You got to. Yeah, (laughs) I've had some. I've had some up here. There's a um there's a really good restaurant I go called Mazadar. Mazadar restaurant right near uh Where is that? it's um it's right near the government center and I'm really close to the owner and it's just great. I'll search it up, I'll search it up. Yeah, man, it's great food. The ladies not, she she always gives me free baklava. Great, man. It's a great place. I just it literally what yeah, shout out to Mazadar. Greek Greece remind me of West Coast hot um, laid back plus southern hospitality. It was beautiful. It's just and like they're always care about you so like in america i'm always telling them i'm on the go i'm driving i'm drinking coffee when you say let's have cafe let's have frappe in greece you sit down for an hour you talk you catch up you're not there's very little fast food places in greece because not everyone's not on the go being slaves to their school to their job to their to the to society they are free you know they're like when i told them i was stressed out they're like just nap for a couple of days i'm like i wish i could I can't. I got my job. I got things to do. I got to like try to move out soon. You know, socioeconomically, especially in Nova, 
you know, I had to go to the only reason I go to went to Mason is because we didn't have enough money to send me anywhere else, even though this is my last school. I couldn't live on campus. I gotta work all these jobs and these internships that can open up jobs just to get out. It's not like that. You know, and of course there's struggles. They got economic struggles. Don't get me wrong. I, I helped out in the student government over there. We raised the most goods, record breaking goods that was actually covered in the local GR Times for the Melissa Center Orphanage, which helped out um, homeless orphans there, which is a huge problem. Don't get me wrong. Econ- economics is important, but you have to have a balance. And I'd rather have a good society and people and a good economy because you can take a people and a society and make a good economy. Economy usually makes a bad people. So they, yeah, have, and- they have potential. They have potential. Yeah. And also, like, I noticed that in America, we have such an individualist culture. Absolutely. And over there, they have, like, there's that collectivism. Is that, is that, that's the opposition to yeah. individualism. Yeah. Collectivism. Absolutely. Yeah. Communalism, collectivism. Yeah. 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 Um, and I noticed, like, it, just one, once, like, I even see immigrants come into here and they kind of already adapt that individualist mentality. And I think there's pros and cons to each. I believe being an individualist in a way gives you independence. You know, you're not really, you know, not as much reliant on the family or the family reliant on you. Um, but like collectivism in a way just share, like allows for people to unify in a way and like give back to maybe some of the people who are in a, a, like less advantage, you know, um, either mental illness or, you know, physical illness of any kind. So collectivism in a way, if they're your family members or part of your culture, you help those kind of people out. And do you feel like America should be more collectivist, uh, collectivist in a way? Although I like collectivism low-key better than individualism, I would say no, because there's not really a lot of other places that are as successfully individualist as America. So what this offers you is a diversity of options. You can go to other places that are more collectivist. You can stay here, which is more individualist. If we did become like the rest of the world, it would be kind of the same all around. And it's beautiful to see the differences and the kind of to the juxtapositions of each ideology, if that makes sense. Even though I agree with it less, I still want it around because for other people, it has it gives them the option. Without without America being individualist, there's a less there's less likely options to be and live in an individualist society. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also, um, just to end off on like on, on like on a final note, uh, like so, you work with both Democrats and Republicans. Yep. What do you? Like, just to end this off, what do you find is an efficient way to bring them both to the table and agree on, like, what's an effective method for that to get, like, if you were tasked? I would say in terms of, are you talking about people who believe in that ideology or people who are elected in office who are Republican? No, no, just having a normal debate about it without, like, you know. Yeah, so then there there are three keys to that, I'd like to say. Number one. Well, obviously, first, bring people together that disagree, okay? Number one, set the ground rules that you're going to have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's the only way we learn and grow, right, is being comfortable being uncomfortable. Number two, use I statements. Instead of saying, like, we need a wall, say something like, I think we need a wall. Just a little difference right there. If you disagree with me, you are going to be a lot more comfortable if I say, I think, I believe, instead of we need this, making it a black or white yes or no. If I say... Um, Trump's a racist and you're, you're a Trump supporter, you're going to be like, what the heck? If I say, well, I believe he is. Here's why. Just that little difference right there is going to allow for conversations to happen and for it not to be shut down and for it not to be um, like an attack. Number three, I would like to say in terms, so we already have comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, Who's I statements? Number three, find at least one thing you can agree upon because we agree more than we disagree. We just don't realize it. 
Find one thing you can agree upon. A lot of my go-to example is infrastructure. Everybody left and right thinks our infrastructure is trash. We need more infrastructure. Find one thing you agree upon. Take it and work together with your different viewpoints. Find a solution about how you can fix it. Left and right, we both think our infrastructure in America is trash. It's basura. So what we need to do, left, some people on the left may have their ways of fixing it. Some people on the right may have their ways of fixing it. Come together find a productive policy to put through and to lobby for it. If you do those three, three, those three things, comfortably uncomfortable, I statements, and then try to find at least one thing to work on and agree upon, even if it's agreeing to disagree, it's the worst case scenario, you will have a mind-blowing conversation. Your perspectives will get changed. You will learn, you will grow, and you will unify. That's what we need more in our society because we as Gen Z, we're not just the future, we're the present as well yeah and i feel like instead of closing doors to conversations we should open them you know like by saying like you know if you're having a debate with someone and someone says oh trump's a racist and that's that that shuts down the, that closes the door that shuts down the conversation then the, the, each side sees each other as irrational in a way there needs to be an element of rationality when it comes to debates and that's why i'm for you know just people having a rational discussion about it but unfortunately in today's society i just see a lot of people just getting emotions involved on both sides okay. Stuff is emotional. It's okay to understand that. I also think a big issue is that we a lot of people, when they disagree, it's because they have different definitions. When someone says blank is racist, well, what is racism? That can mean different things to different people. So coming together and finding a commonality, what you can agree on of definitions of certain topics is key to unifying. Well, you absolutely right. People do use emotion. But it's okay. You shouldn't have to be a robot. Mix it together and understand. Be like, look, I'm emotional on this. Great example, Palestine, Israel. There are a lot of them because these are people's families and livelihoods. You know what I'm saying? Understand, be like, preface by saying, look, I got a family there. I'm going to be emotional and that's okay. And the other person understands that. And they can be like, look, let me disagree with you, but this is no attack on your, just, just commute, opening this up and, and conversing stuff like this really deescalates and, and, and leads to less tension and more conversation and less shutting down. Yeah, man. And uh, I can say as a, a Palestinian American, like who was born here, but has family who still even lives in Palestine, um, it does emotionally affect me, but I'm willing to hear an Israeli perspective. And I have heard many Israeli perspectives. And, uh, you know, where my political, you know, stances, like, you know, libertarian stance more towards the right, I kind of have to understand why the Israeli government does certain things. And again, I'm not defending those actions. But uh, you kind of have to understand both sides. You and understand. You have, to- you have to see from both sides to get anything done. That's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, Ransom, is there anything you want to you know, promote? Is there anything coming up that, you know, maybe a podcast or maybe an appearance that you're making that you want to tell our audience I'll, about? I'll promote your podcast. You're doing a great job with that. Love the first episode. Um, follow me on Instagram at RansomFoxDC. Um, and if you go to George Mason, stay tuned. There's a lot of stuff coming to make our community safer. George um, Mason University. Yep. In and Virginia. join the conversationalist. Look up the conversationalist on Instagram. Great networking. We'll Isaiah, put the links. It, was honor, it was an honor letting um letting um having you let me be on your podcast. It was an honor. It's very yeah. fun. I loved it. It was very I've been on a lot of other podcasts and it's great. You know, everyone's got strength weaknesses. It's a lot more structured. This is more just talking. I loved it. It was beautiful. We did a great job. You're a great host. Thank you so much, Ransom. And we will put all those stuff in the description box below or somewhere here, here, here. I'll I'll put it somewhere on the the screen. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, have a good one, man. Have a good one. Stay safe. Everyone listening, stay safe and have a great rest of your wherever you're listening. Day, evening, whatever it is. Adios, (laughs) y'all.